All right, today we are talking to Stephanie Roy McCallum. She is the chief storm writer at the Courageous Leadership Project, where she works with leaders to have brave, honest conversations about what matters most so that they can find solutions to problems in their world. She's called the chief storm writer because she rides the storm of high emotion and conflict to clear skies, helping people work through their challenges and find a way forward. Stephanie, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much, John. I'm really glad to be here. So Stephanie, our paths crossed a few months ago via Rick Tamlin. He's a, he's a reoccurring theme on this show in terms of the people that I'm meeting and the things I'm thinking about, as well as the whole CTI coaching world. So that's, I think, where we first encountered each other. And I'm on this quest for, like, I feel like I'm having an awakening around this idea of leadership and what it is. As I've been thinking about who could I talk to about this and explore it more, I think you showed up in my Facebook feed or something, and I thought, oh, I should talk to Stephanie. She did this amazing talk at Rick's conference, and she'd be the perfect person to talk to today. How did you think? Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to comment that I think it's so interesting that you're having an awakening around leadership, because I think that's that's in the space right now. Like, um, I watch the news, and I listen to politicians and community members talk, and you know, the space is so full of angst and fear and anxiety. But part of that, the beauty of that is that people are questioning, well, what is a leader? And how do leaders show up? And how do we want to show up in this mess of the world that we live in? So I just think that it's beautiful. You're having an awakening. It's really calling to you. Yeah. And so how did you get into this whole space? Well, a little bit like that. So um, my work is, has been in conflict and high emotion situations of that, mostly in the public discourse space for about 25 years. So, so like, I want you to, to get a sense of the other kinds of things I do, like think about protests or, you know, petitions or people chaining themselves to fences, you know, that kind of conflict where people are on so deeply different sides that there seems to be no way forward and they get desperate. So I usually get hired by a government or a private company, but oftentimes by community themselves to help them figure out, oh my goodness, how do we talk about this together? How do we figure out a way forward? And I've been doing that for about 25 years. And, um, and one of the things I learned along the way, or I'm learning, actually haven't learned, I'm learning every day along the way is that the, we can have all these great conversations, but we still get stuck in our corners after the conversation's over, unless we've got our own individual capacity for leadership, unless we know what we believe and what we stand for, and we can bring that to our conversations and we can really be leading and making choices in our lives about how we want to solve tough problems. So for me, leadership is core to this work of conflict that I do. One well, the thing that occurs to me there too is often comes up in coaching, which is you can have a really, you can have an epiphany and have a really interesting conversation, but if you don't do anything, nothing's going to change. So it's yeah, like, like uh, here you can have these ideas, but you've got to actually have the tough conversation or do something. Yeah, absolutely. And they totally go together. So I think like, like I think about the resolving the conflict piece often is action, but the action doesn't work unless you have a particular leadership mindset that allows you to work with other people to make the action real. So it just kind of goes back and forth on that sort of being and doing and being and doing spectrum mindset and action. They, they have to hold hands to make mm. change. 
So I got into this idea of leadership. So I my whole awakening kind of happened around personal ownership. There was a book called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, who's a Navy SEAL, and this whole idea of like owning everything about you and your life. And that resonated with the coaching work I was doing for myself and then with others. But then what I realized was, well, after you've totally owned your, you have to do something. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the leading, and that's where I was like, oh, so you can own everything about your life, but if you're not like taking it somewhere, if you're just, yeah. you know, managing versus leading your life, then you're, you haven't really gone anywhere. So what's your best definition of this word leadership? Cause it's so overused and so, I don't know. I have some, I think I have a lot of corporate cynicism around the word cause I've heard it so much. Uh, I think so. I think it is. It's one of those people roll their eyes when you say you, you know, like my, that my company name is the courageous leadership project and people sometimes roll their eyes like, Oh, okay. You're, you're working on making brave leaders. You know, everybody's making a working authentic leaders or, you know, something like that. I think, I think for me, a leader is, it's a pretty simple definition. First of all, it has very little to do with role or position. Um, uh, that's just like, like a, I don't know, like an external trapping. Uh, so I think leadership, Rick often says, um, it's an insta- inspiration to both of us. He often says leadership is an inside job. And so I think at first it starts there. So leaders come from inside. And then secondly, I think we're all leaders, but not everybody chooses to step forward to take an active role in their, you know, in their own life and their own communities, their organizations, their families to act as leaders. But the opportunity, the possibility always exists. And then the third thing I think is that um, leaders inspire or empower other people to also make choices towards positive change. And and so uh, like if you're a leader and no one is following you, then you're just kind of a lone nut. <laughs> you're not a leader. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just somebody with a bunch of big ideas running off down the street by yourself. So I think there's that piece too, right? Leaders have followers because they've inspired or empowered other people to, to cease the possibilities in something. So that's my definition of leadership. And it's a bonus if people who are you know, focusing on their own internal leadership, they know what they stand for, and who are making choices in their life and in their work to take action, and who are inspiring and empowering others. It's a bonus if they happen to hold actual positions of power. That's a bonus. But I I think it's not a, those two things don't always go together. There's lots of people who hold positions of power who wouldn't fit into my definition of leaders. So that's fascinating because, yeah, I've always in the corporate context, it's always been, well, this person is, quote, a leader because they're a vice president or executive vice president or whatever. In other words, the, they're, they're naturally, quote, a leader because of their title. That's right. And I think we, it's time we kind of burst that bubble. Um, you know, you have a role in an organization, but that doesn't necessarily make you a leader unless people are willing to follow you unless you inspire um, other people and unless you stand for something and you lead from that, whatever it is that you believe in, that you're so committed to, um, like the change you want to see in the world or your organization or your work. That's what makes you a leader. So uh, having being the vice president just doesn't do it. So part of my cynicism around this whole thing comes from the 
like what I've seen in companies where it's like they have a a leadership program or a leadership development program, which typically looks like a, a group of people are handpicked to do a project and they are supposed to kind of innately learn leadership by doing this project and having conflict and success together. And then that helps them to, and I've always just thought, well, and I've coached some of these people too, actually. <laughs> it's like, well, well, how are you learning to be a leader? And they're like, I don't know. We're supposed to figure it out. So how does someone become a leader? How do they learn to become an effective leader? Well, I mean, I think it's like, uh, well, that's, so I don't think we're going to answer that question, just to be honest, in, <laughs> in the hour that we've got. So, so, but let me start, let me give you a start of maybe some of the answers that I have, because I don't have all the answers. I think it's a first, it's a bit of a reckoning. I think in order to be able to explore your own personal leadership, you have to, I don't know, hit a wall, have a crisis, have a, um, you know, like a real, I was going to say a come to Jesus moment, like a, like a moment where you're like, wait a minute, where do I stand for? Who am I? I think that's, that's a great catalyst for becoming a leader because it makes you question the status quo. So I, I think that's a real opportunity. And I think the other thing is that you got to dig deep. You have to really practice self-awareness. You got to really be willing to reflect on, you know, your, your strengths, but your warts and your flaws and your impact in the world around you. Like you might have great vision and super fantastic ideas, but not inspire anyone because you're busy telling them what to do. So to build your own awareness of how you, how you really impact other people. So if for in the example of your, your clients who are, you know, working on a project and are supposed to learn to be leaders that way, you can learn to be a leader absolutely in a project. If there's, you know, a practice of self-reflection and self-awareness and, and, you know, action learning built into it. But just working on a project probably isn't going to make you a leader unless you're, you know, you're kind of really stretching and growing. How have you come to some of these places of greater self-awareness? Well, <laughs> it's funny that we're talking today because I gave a big speech yesterday. Um, and in that speech, I shared one of my my biggest professional crises, um, which was a doozy. Um, it, it was a project that just went super sideways and that um, the controversy became about me and whether I was competent. And it trended nationally on Twitter in Canada for a couple of weeks. It made the National Post, um, that's our one of our national newspapers, you know, it made a whole bunch of other local papers. It was, um, it was a real reckoning for me on, you know, 20, it happened at about the 20 year mark in my career doing this work. And it was a real reckoning for what do I stand for and who am I and what do I believe and am I credible or competent or capable? And, and it also made me question too, like the people that I work with, and the people that I'm engaging in these conversations, if the space between us is all full of blame and shame and, and vitriol, and what does it say about the work I'm trying to do and the system I work in, like communities being full of blame and shame and polarization. So it was a, it was a really big professional crisis. And it, it, there were a lot of dark nights of soul searching, I have to tell you, um, as a result. And then I've had personal crises, like everybody has had, um, you know, challenges with in your life with, you know, children being sick or marriages falling apart. Those kinds of things too are really great 
opportunities to, to do some reflection about who you are and what you stand for. Probably in the middle of those moments, you don't see them as great opportunities. You're just lost in the pain, but they're great moments to, to choose to really make choices about how you want to be in your life. You tell a really poignant story at the Bigger Game Life Conference. You, I, and I can't remember, I believe that you were doing some work was it with some First Nations people. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell that story yeah, a little yeah. bit, and then it, and then it involved your uh, your daughter, and like tell that story. Okay. Because I never um, heard the conclusion to it. All I remember is that okay. my heart heart stopped beating <laughs> at a certain point because <laughs> I have true. a son. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I only told the story to kind of the crisis moment, and then I, and then I stepped away from the story. So it was a project. I had been hired to work with a power company to to help them have a better relationship with an indigenous community. In the U.S., you often call them call them tribal communities. Our Native Americans in Canada, we call them First Nations or Indigenous peoples, and. Um, to transform basically 90 years of conflict between this community and this company. And, and, um, so we started on this journey to like, what does it even mean to be neighbors and have a relationship and partway through flying into these community, this community is incredibly remote. So it was a fly in fly out community. That's, you know, you book the plane, the chart of the plane and you don't get out until the plane comes back to get you. And partway through, we flew into the community to realize that three young people had committed suicide. And there's a real epidemic of that kind of desperate, tragic loss of life in Indigenous communities. And I was there trying to hold the space for that conversation in that community, knowing we weren't going to be talking about the conflict with this power company. We were going to talk about the pain in the community that led to to this, the impacts of colonization. And and a couple of days in, I got a phone call advising me or telling me that my daughter, who was 14 at the time, had just tried to commit suicide herself. And oh, I can't even, every time I tell this story like that, it takes me right back to that moment. And, you know, like the fear and the guilt, like, of not being there and and the pain she was going through. And, and so how to, in that story at the bigger game, I kind of stopped right there. And yeah. Just said, you know, <laughs> yeah. How do I be with that pain and also be in service to the community? Cause there was no getting out. That was the thing. There was no calling my daughter because they'd put her in the psychiatric ward. And so they weren't allowing her to take calls. So she didn't even know I was thinking about her. And then number two, there was no getting out until the plane was coming back for me in a couple of days. So, so that's where I stopped the story, but I will tell you that in conclusion, I I eventually obviously got out of the community and came home and spent lots of time with my daughter. She was in hospital for six or eight weeks and, um, and well, I mean, her story is her story. So it's been a, it was a long journey to coming out of that pit of depression and anxiety that she, that she experiences um, and over the years, uh, she's learned incredible coping mechanisms and, and, you know, lots of self-awareness and self-reflection and, and the ability to ask for help. My journey as a mother has been learning how to just 
be with somebody you love who's in pain when you can't fix it. And also it's not yours to fix. And so how to just be with someone uh, who just experiences that incredible pain. Because as a parent, you want to fix it. You mm-hmm. want to make it better. You want to take it away. And there is no, there is no taking it away. And it's, and it's also not yours to fix. So for me, learning the boundaries of how to be there and also not take res- uh, responsibilities is the wrong word, you know. But even if I could pick up her burden for her, I couldn't carry it. What were some effective ways you found to do that? Well, I had to really flex my how to be empathetic muscle. You know, we all feel empathy and we're all wired for that um, naturally, but we don't all necessarily know how to, what the, what actions represent empathy in, in our interactions with people. And so I had to learn that, you know, sometimes it just meant sitting beside somebody. Sometimes it just meant listening. Uh, it never meant offering solutions or advice. It never meant trying to tell her, you know, oh, be positive, look on the happy side, here's some good stuff. Like just, you're not trying to dilute or or marginalize or minimize somebody's pain. You're just trying to be in the pain with them. I always think of Brene Brown saying that empathy is when, uh, well, the difference between sympathy and, and empathy. Sympathy is when you are over there in your pain and I am over here from afar saying, oh, it must be so hard to be you over there. But empathy is just standing beside you saying you are not alone. And so I hold that in my head. The Just the learning how to actually action empathy is different than feeling it. Because so often we go to feeling the pain of someone else and then wanting to make it better. So we're just not taking that extra step. Mm. How does this tie into your notion of courageous leadership and brave conversations? Oh, it's so directly related. I think it's such an such an ironic or or counterintuitive thing that the path to courage, to really being brave, I think, is to own your fears, shortcomings, inadequacies, and um, really be honest about them. That um, you know when we've when we try and arm ourselves, we create barriers between us and somebody else and then our ability to act from them, right? We're, we shield ourselves and our ability to, to grow and stretch, but we shield our relationships with other people. So it's actually a, an act of peeling back those layers. The more, the more courage you have emotionally, the better of a leader you are because when you are brave, and you are vulnerable, you create connection with other peoples, which, of course, inspires and empowers them to take actions towards positive change in their own life. And I think for a lot of years in the leadership space, there was this idea that you should have a vision and put it out there and people will follow you. But your vision isn't anything unless it's tied to the essence of who you are. And that essence of who you are invariably means being vulnerable. I don't know. Have I been clear there? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So yeah. how does, I mean, the next question that popped in my head and I'm guessing people are thinking is, well, okay, that's really nice, but how do I become braver? How do I have courage? 
Well, that's a life's work. I think, I, I think it's a, it's totally a life work. I mean, I think the moments that we feel fear, I mean, the very first step is actually building your awareness that you are afraid because it, it's such a natural human reaction to feel discomfort or fear and immediately seek to avoid it or relieve yourself of that. Like we distract ourselves, we procrastinate, we, um, you know, change the conversation, we, um, take actions to keep ourselves busy. Like we, without even realizing that what we're doing is avoiding the thing that's hard. So, uh, so the very first step is, is actually building the awareness of what fear feels like for you, what, how it shows up, what it looks like, and then how you tend to respond. Cause you'll respond differently in different situations and with different people too. Like I respond differently when I'm afraid to have a conversation with my husband than when I'm afraid to stand in a room of, you know, a hundred angry people, uh, uh, you know, the fear shows up differently in my body. So, so awareness is the very first step, but it, it's, it's a willingness then once you're aware to say, okay, so I'm feeling afraid, uncomfortable, like sweaty palms, going to throw up a little bit. And so now I'm going to be with this anyway. Like, even though I feel that, I'm going to be mm. with it because I'm committed to something more than my fear. And your feelings. Yeah. And your yeah. emotions, which yes, some people believe, and I'm kind of falling into this camp myself, which is that our thoughts create our feelings. I think that's true. I think our feelings create our thoughts too, though. Ooh, say more about that. Well, I because I think, you know, you can feel, I don't know, sad. And then you can have a negative thoughts about, you know, you're the relationships that you have or the place where you work. Like there's, they, it's like they just go together. So you could, you could be thinking, oh, I hate my job. So then you will feel sad and frustrated and anxious and wanting to depart. Or you could be feeling frustrated and wanting more in your life and wanting to grow. So then what you think is, I hate my job and this doesn't work for me and I need to find a new job. Like they just go directly together. I think that emotions are paths to helping us make under like make meaning in our lives. So they, if I think about it, like it's a, like a braid, you know, our thoughts and our feelings together and your thoughts alone don't make meaning for you. They're just, they're just words, just ideas. But when you layer them over with your feelings, I think you get closer to the essence of, of what really is going on or what really matters because intertwined, they go together. But if you only pay attention to your feelings, then, then all you have is a feeling, right? You don't have a meaning. So you'd be all know. over the place too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I listened it. to all my feelings, I'd be in a heap of trouble. Oh. oh, totally. And you'd be like a roller coaster all the time. So yeah. What is it about having courageous conversations? What, how does that fit into the bigger picture of what you do? Well, I guess I think, or I guess I've learned probably throughout my whole life, like before I even started doing this work, that, you know, I, I really believe that I call them brave, honest conversations. They're the path to solve our problems in the world, but 
they're that path because when we have brave, honest conversations with each other, we see each other. We meet each other where we're at. We create connection where we're in relationship. There is trust. It's through that conversation that those things happen because we really understand each other. Even if we totally disagree, suddenly we can, we can see the other human being across from us as a human being, not just a position or an opinion or a viewpoint or an issue. And so it's, it's the conversation itself, the ability to listen, the ability to be there for someone else, the ability to be open enough to learn, to open your heart, to, to say, hey, what is it like to be you? That for me is the, is the path to everything, I think. In leadership, in family, in community, when we take the opportunity to talk about the stuff that really matters, we connect to each other. And because we are connected and in relationship and we trust each other, then we can solve problems. How does that work, though, if the other person or party isn't willing to? Well, and a particular so- world leader comes to mind for me, which is, I don't know how you could have a, an honest conversation. I just, I mean, yeah, I don't know him personally, but everything I see is, yeah, not that. So how would yeah. that work? Okay, so so setting aside my own particular political viewpoints, I I would offer this that the the moment that we say, and I catch myself doing it all the time, the moment we that we say, well, that person couldn't be in conversation, or that Ew, person I'm busted. Okay, yeah, totally. <laughs> okay, fair yeah. enough. Yep. Yep, isn't willing to put aside their views, then you know, then you're stuck, right? You've made assumptions about somebody else. You've already which you decided- have no control over. Oh, I no, just had an amazing no. epiphany here. So, so in other words, that just closes the situation right down. Yeah. With, starting with the assumption of well, that person won't, isn't capable. In other words, any type of judgment about the other person. Yep, totally shuts the conversation down, and then there there is no conversation. So here's the other thing, right? Is that Leaders inspire or empower other people to make positive change because they believe in something and they lead from that. So for example, imagine if you were to have a conversation with a particular political leader who seems to not want to, to you know, understand other people's views. If you were to have a conversation with that person, but you led in the conversation from the place of a commitment to respect a commitment to uh, compassion, a commitment to building understanding, and you and made a choice to enter into the conversation with that, imagine what the conversation might feel like that would be different than it, it would otherwise if you came came from a different mindset. So for that plays so much for me into leadership. Do you have examples like when you talked about, you know, addressing a hundred angry people and this working? Uh, (laughs) Yes. And no, because there's no magic wand for this stuff. So it doesn't always work. You're dealing with people and they're in uh, unpredictable, but yeah, I, I absolutely have examples and I'm just trying to think of one that might be appropriate for your, for your audience. Like, I do a lot of local government work, so municipal work. So 
people really angry, say, about um, where municipal transit is going to go, like light rail um, lines and stuff. And the ability to to take the line off the map and sit down and have have a real conversation. But here, I'll give you a real tangible example. So I did a project a couple of years ago. It actually won an international award for this kind of work. We were hired by an organization called Canadian Blood Services. So in the U.S., that's the American Red Cross, who the organization is responsible for blood donation in Canada. And they had a policy going back to the 70s and 80s that if you are a man who's ever had sex with another man, you cannot donate blood. And they were taken to, and I think American Red Cross has had a similar policy. Most of the other blood donation organizations in the world um, didn't have that same policy in recent years. They've all changed them. But Canada and the U.S. still had those policies. And they were taken to the Supreme Court as a human rights violation. And the Supreme Court basically said to Canadian Blood Services, well, it's not a human right to donate blood. So it's not a human rights violation. But basically, Canadian Blood Services, you need to get your act together because your science isn't sound and this policy isn't, is, you know, is potentially discriminatory. So I was hired to bring together blood recipient groups like heart and stroke and hemophilia and kidney and stroke or kidney and heart together with representatives from the LGBTQ communities to have a conversation, right, about how do we move forward together? Like if you, like there were protests outside blood donation centers <laughs> for years. Well, yeah, when like, you said bring these people to have a conversation, I'm thinking bring these people to ha- together to have a screaming match. Yeah, yeah, that's the kind of environment it was. I mean, you go to the Supreme Court, people are pretty polarized on, you know, you're either homophobic or you're going to kill me. Those were basically the views. You know, if you don't eat blood, you'll kill me or you're homophobic. Those were the sides of the issue to bring them into a conversation where they could actually first really see each other, really listen to understand all the things that needed to be considered and then figure out a way to move forward. So how did you do that? How, like, well, like, like what was the, what was the mindset? What were the things that you did that were effective and maybe weren't effective? Yeah. Well, we had to really prepare them in advance. Everybody who was coming, like we ran separate conversations and interviews with people getting them to get their own heads around what might it feel like to be in a room with everybody having this conversation. So we prepared people first and then we brought them in and we put folks in circles, just one big circle. And then we had a listening circle so people could talk about how the existing policy had impacted them. So they, people could tell their own stories, you know, stories of fear of feeling like, they couldn't make a contribution of being discriminated against about, you know, uh, living in anxiety about whether, you know, this life-giving blood was going to kill them. And and all the stories they were telling themselves about assumptions they were each making about each other, uh, the other side, you had to, we had to surface those, but we had to do them slowly and through storytelling and through, you know, let me tell you my experience over many days and many months. Before we could even broach, okay, how do we move forward? I think that's a challenge in our society. You know, we go right to solution, right to, okay, <laughs> now let's solve this problem. But you can't do that till you see each other. So that sounds so powerful. Just this notion of sitting, like how many people are in this circle? 
Uh, like 50 or 100. Oh, my goodness. In one big circle. Yep. Listening yep. to one person speak at a time. That's right. And they're yeah. and and each and they were respectful of that one person speaking. Yes, they were. They were. Yep. But wow. you have to set the stage first. Like you have to set the stage. Like everybody's emotional here. There's a lot of passion. There's a lot of fear. The one thing this room holds in common is fear. So let's just recognize and respect that, and let's you know let's just take a moment to each share and each listen. And, and you, you were just, leading this. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, something I, I got from Rick that I thought was really fascinating was because uh, six months ago, I would have said, oh, you were facilitating that meeting. Yeah. And, and I, I was talking to Rick about this. And he's like, no, no, no. Lee, it's leading. Facilitating yeah. is just like you're just managing and directing traffic. Leading is actually taking people somewhere. And that's I think right. that's what first started sparking this idea of like, Oh, there's a difference between leadership and ownership. Like if you really want to lead, you've got to go somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got to stand for something too, right? Like yes. those two things go together, you know, because in my work, lots of my peers, they call themselves facilitators or neutral third parties or mediators. And I just think that's, that's not a go because then you, what do you stand for? You know, what do you believe? Like in those conversations with Canadian blood services and the, and the, you know, the patient rights groups and the LGBTQ community members, what I believed in was inclusion, 100%, and fairness and respect. And I also led from the place of, like, we can do this. They can do this. They can find this together. You got to believe that it, the, the conversation is possible because... Otherwise, it isn't, right? You manifest what you believe. That's another thing about leadership, too. Like people who have vision and who really have a stand and they lead from that, it's because they believe it's possible. Yeah, that's a, what was going on in my mind there is like, well, how do you help someone believe it's possible when they don't? <laughs> I don't know. My answer was, well, get a coach. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, yeah. Get a coach. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Try on a couple different perspectives. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, totally. Yeah. What about having brave? So you mentioned, you know, that they have kind of these brave conversations in like kind of the public sphere and then maybe in the more private or personal sphere, like with a spouse. What are your suggestions there in terms of getting started. Maybe I need to have a really difficult conversation with my wife that I'm totally avoiding. Where do you encourage people to start with things like that? Well, I think first, I think you got to ask yourself, why are you having this conversation? You know, is it because you're upset and you want them to to (laughs) feel bad? (laughs) Here, let me make you feel worse so I can feel better. That's right. (laughs) That's it. Exactly. Yeah. Like, why are you having the conversation? What's your ultimate goal, you know, what do you think will be achieved to the conversation? Get clear on that for yourself. And then also get clear on what you're committed to in the relationship. So whether it's with your coworkers or the people who work for you or your spouse or whoever it is, get committed on what you're clear on what you're committed to in the relationship, like the long-term success of this relationship, like this other person, you know, being happy and fulfilled you know, like that, so that it takes you a little outside of your own pain or fear to the bigger picture. And then I'd start cleanly with, you know, just, it's really basic, um, actually like 
guidance for fighting, like only use I statements. I am feeling this. I am experiencing this. And, and then after you say what you are experiencing or feeling, also offer what you hope. So if that's what you say, I'm really experiencing that you've been really kind of grouchy and disconnected lately. And that's making me feel a little bit lost and uncertain in our relationship. And my hope is for a stronger connection between us or for us to, to kind of find each other again. So you, you transition not from to what could be interpreted as blame, but to something that is, is where you want to go with that person, which is an act of leadership. Yes. I was just thinking that I was like, Oh, you're, you're, you're leading to an outcome. Like there's, there's an outcome that you have in mind as opposed to this is horrible and I just want it to be better. Just totally ambiguous. Yes. Yeah. You gotta, I think you need to be clear about if this isn't working for you, what would work for you? And, but here's the, here's the tricky thing about it. Here's what would work for me, but don't be attached to it because you can't solve the problem by yourself. Right. If you're in relationship with somebody else, then you have to be open to them saying, well, that doesn't work for me, but this works for me. So, you know, then you get into the weaving back and forth of the two of you together, finding what's the solution for moving forward. What other aspects of your work have we not talked about yet? Hmm. I'm trying to think. Well, maybe the part about the stories we tell ourselves. Oh, yeah. Say, talk about that. (laughs) I think, gosh, I think there are so many stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Like they can be stories from childhood about who we are that we just need to let go of. Or they can be stories about our own uncertainties or insecurities. So they get, because we tell ourselves those stories, they get between us. Like I'll give you an example. I have a story that I carry with me from childhood that I am not enough. Like doesn't matter how smart or capable or, you know, I don't know, accomplished I am. It's still not quite enough. And I need to be one, you know, the next thing I do will be the thing that will make me feel like I'm enough. But that so doesn't serve me because what it does is takes the joy out of my ability to celebrate any accomplishment. It lessens my ability to be present to what's happening right now. It makes me sometimes kind of want to don the mask of, oh, I've got this all. I've got it all together, (laughs) even when I don't. So, you know, it actually, you know, allows me not to be in connection with other people because I'm so busy worrying if they think I'm enough or not. So, you know, like actually becoming aware of those stories that you tell yourself, because most of them don't serve you. They really don't serve you. And you have to figure out how to let them go and build and create new stories like I am who I am and I'm going to accept and embrace, you know, the entire mess that is me. And that's okay, which is a totally different story than I'm not enough. And and changing that story allows me to be more present. It allows me to drop the mask. It allows me to be in relationship um, fully. So, yeah, and I reacted so strongly to that because I just finished listening to the audio version of "The Story of You" by Steve Chandler. Are you familiar oh, with that? Oh, I haven't read that. No, not at all. Tell me about it. it well, it's, it's exactly what you're just saying. 
you know, you start off with a story that says, so one of his examples is, and I see this a lot in my coaching work. Someone will say, well, I'm just not a details person. Right. Yes. (laughs) You know, and and his challenge right back was like, so what if that's just a story you're telling yourself that you're not a details? And I also hear it all the time with people like, oh, I'm really bad with names. And there's been so many times I've just wanted to say, what if that's just a story you're telling yourself? Like I recently taught one of my first workshops and I went in very intentionally with, I want to, I I was starting with, wow, it's always hard to remember people's names. And I said, no, 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 I'm going into this thing and I'm going to figure out a way to learn everyone's names and use their names because I think that's really important and it builds connection with people. I'm not going to tell myself that story. I don't remember what I replaced it with, but it was just this notion of, I'm going to do everything I can to try to remember people's names. And it had a completely different outcome. Yeah. Well, which leads us back to choice, right? You choose something different and you lead from that. And when you believe in that as a possibility, oh my God, it manifests in the world. So all these things just keep coming around in circles <laughs> with each other. They all go together. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. And and the part I guess I'm still playing with with the story thing is, you know, it's like, okay, what could you replace the story with? I think there's a, there's a fine line. Like some people say, well, you just create this really amazing story and you just tell it to yourself but I'm still struggling with the tension between yeah but sometimes we tell ourselves like really ridiculous stuff that we don't believe yeah and then we're just kind of stuck in our disbelief and I don't think that serves us either so um, yeah I think you're I, I think you've really hit on something there like the the uh, the way to let go of a story that's not serving you is not to replace it with the opposite story so in my example right I'm not enough I, you know, I will be enough next time I manage this or do this, replacing that with, oh, I am enough. I am amazing. Uh, you know, I have it all together. Like you, I'm fantastic. Doesn't work for me because mostly I just look in the mirror and go, oh my God, give me a break. Yeah, like exactly. that's, that's not, that doesn't work for me. It doesn't, doesn't change the narrative. I have to actually choose to I don't know, choose to rewrite my inner narrative that says I'm not enough and that's okay. Instead of, so just, it's, I think it's more of a sinking into embracing and accepting. What is? Yeah, what is? Although, yeah, although, although I'm not sure I want to accept that. (laughs) (laughs) It releases it. That's the crazy thing, right? Is that it it releases control. Yeah, it releases the control of it in your life. It changes the story to being like, you know, I I often say to my clients that, um, you know, believing in yourself is overrated. Like if you're waiting for the day that you believe in yourself, you could wait a really long time. But if you believe in somebody else or if you believe in something else, then believe in that and act from that and lead from that. And as you go along, you'll find out that you feel better about yourself because you're making positive change in the world and in other people's lives. Yeah, I think that one's really key. In fact, that's something that I did in some work with Rick was coming up with a list of the things that I believed. Yeah. It was so empowering. I mean, I could have made a list of all the things I don't believe or I'm not sure about or that I don't like about myself. (laughs) Yeah, because those lists can be long. Yes, And they don't serve, they don't serve really in any helpful way, but it was, I guess it was, yeah, it was making this list of these are the things that I believe that really reoriented, that became my focus. This is what I believe and this is how it serves me. 
Yes. Yes, absolutely. But I guess the thing, I guess being with what is, I guess the part I was, I was, I don't know, coming, crossing over myself there was like, I don't, I'm not sure I would want to say, well, well, Stephanie, yeah, let's just really be with the fact that you're not enough. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. That just doesn't. Yeah. Cause I guess well, I would I like, take, go ahead. I think it's more, I, I think it's more not just, I don't know, getting lost in the story. It's more embracing that it's okay not to be perfect. Like it's an okay not to, uh, you know, always be great or happy or successful or smart or, you know, have it together, you know, to have all those days of, you know, being afraid or being anxious or being sad or being angry or looking awful, that it's okay to have all those days because that makes you a richer human being. So it's a, like, it's, it's not that I'm saying, oh, I'm not enough. And so I'm going to lead from there, which, you know, when you say <laughs> that, then she feels so dejected. It's, it's saying there are days I'm just not going to have it together. And there are going to be days I lead from fear or days I lead from anxiety. And those aren't the, you know, and that's okay. Like, because I'm human and uh, the next day I'll get up and I'll be something different. I'll be brave and open hearted. And all those days go together. You know, it's a little bit like that saying, right? You can't have joy unless you have pain. You can't always be in one state. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a real thing to ponder. So as we wrap up, are there any other things or ch- anything to ponder or challenges that you would want to give to people? Oh, like a challenge for sure. I, I really think like more than ever, we live in a time of chaos, uncertainty, change. Like the space between us is just churning with emotion, like churning with rage and fear and anxiety, the space between us, like we're inundated by stories of hardship and pain and polarization. And I think that what matters, what changes that space is when we each choose to lead from something different. And so for me, that means it starts with you. Like it starts with you in your life today, in your next conversation with a family member or, you know, a partner or a colleague, or your neighbor, it starts like in every interaction that you have. And if you choose to lead from something else, if you choose to lead from love or compassion, or courage or curiosity with the stranger on the street, instead of fear and, and discomfort, that when we choose that, we change the space between us from this inundation of chaos and conflict that's, that's really in our world right now. And I so wish that every day people could make those, those choices or to the best of their abilities, more, more days than not, because I think that's what it's going to take to really shift, to turn the tide. Where can people find out more about you, contact you, get to know more of your story and what you're up to? My company is called The Courageous Leadership Project. You can find me at www.bravelylead.com. And and I blog pretty frequently on Medium. I'm Redhead Steph, and I'm at Redhead Steph on Twitter. Um, there's a, we've also got a Courageous Leadership Facebook page, 
And I post, you know, thoughts, ponderings, big questions, um, you know, things that strike me as, as funny or opportunities as I, as I learn about bravely leading every day on all those places. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, John. This was really a lovely conversation. Thanks for listening to The John Polster Show. Notes, links, and all that other good stuff for this episode are at johnpolster.com slash podcast. Send your questions, ideas, or a simple hello to podcast at johnpolster.com. Want to stay up to date on new episodes and receive notifications of upcoming events? Register your email address at johnpolster.com slash updates. <laughs>